a lot of different groups came to this understanding and they just said, oh, the place to go must be Mexico. And there is a lot of opportunity in Mexico, but very similar to Vietnam, it's a much smaller manufacturing marketplace. What's interesting is, is that because of the size of the Indian marketplace, because of the raw materials that are going on there, that now is starting to allow for the consumer products market to start to flourish in that, in that area. Growing a business requires a holistic approach that extends beyond sales and marketing. This approach needs alignment among people, processes, and technologies. So if you're a business owner, operations, or finance leader looking to learn growth strategies from your peers and competitors, you're tuned into the right podcast. Welcome to the WBS Podcast, where scalable growth using business systems is our number one priority. Now, here is your host, Sam Gupta. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the WBS Podcast. I'm Sam Gupta, your host and principal consultant at the independent ERP and digital transformation consulting firm, Elevate IQ. Which country would you think would be the most strategic for your supply chain? Which country would be the most strategic for an apparel business? Two different components such as zippers, versus textile needs to be sourced from different countries. How do different regions of India provide different textile materials such as performance fabric versus organic? How would this all help in creating a robust supply chain? In today's episode, our guest Anant Veer and Ben shares his insights into how to create a robust supply chain for an apparel business. They also discussed the challenges with global supply chain due to the macroeconomic conditions, war, and inflation. Finally, they discussed several other concepts impacting apparel industry such as different regions for sourcing, marketplaces, and logistics challenges. Let me introduce Ben and Anand to you. Benjamin Halfwood is currently the Chief Operating Officer for Gemba along with Anantweer Agarwal, who is the Director of Production Central Asia. Both of them bring a profound understanding of global supply chain, especially for the apparel market. They also bring deep expertise of different regions of India and why Indian market is strategic for apparel industry and manufacturing due to the changing landscape of supply chain, macroeconomic conditions, and regulatory policies. With that, let's get to the conversation. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Hey Sam, happy to be here. Hey guys, I am super excited to have you as well, especially the kind of insights that you are going to bring for the apparel market. And uh, India is always a very strategic market as far as the apparel industry goes. So, and with the current uh, market conditions, uh, our listeners are going to be so interested in knowing what's going on there. So we are going to have a lot of fun discussing all of that before we do that, just to get things off. Do you guys want to start with your personal story and current focus? Ben, I'll start with you. Certainly. Well, it's great to get to, to, to meet everybody today. So my background was uh, in 2002, I ended up heading over to China and uh, was in the Asia region. So this would be China, Southeast Asia, and a little bit in Southern Asia for about 17 years doing manufacturing and supply chain out there. Worked for organizations as large as you know Walmart and Caterpillar and some of those groups, as well as small to medium-sized businesses. But almost everything that I did during that period of time was really focused on what do what does it take to set up a really, really robust supply chain? Yeah. Um, and then and then really seeing how the, uh, the, the 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 change that was happening over that 10 year period to, to 15 year period really was was moving uh, markets, not not just from, from from the U.S. to overseas, but then from 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 country to country. And, uh, and of course, over the past four years, we've only seen that, that, that acceleration grow. Um, currently, I'm the COO at, at Gemba, and, yep. uh, and we are a marketplace for product development. So we handle everything from design all the way through manufacturing and fulfillment. Yep. 
so we we have quite an extensive manufacturing network as well as uh, as well as an expert network that that helps us to attain that. Okay, amazing background there. And by the way, robust supply chain, I don't know supply chains are ever going to be robust, but we'll probably figure out the formula today how to make them robust. On that note, I am actually going to start with, uh, Anantri, do you want to start with your personal story and, and your current focus as well? Absolutely. So on my side, Sam, I've been, uh, I think most of my career, I've been an entrepreneur. Uh, I started my uh, own businesses back, I think, 15 years ago was my first business, where Very I set up cool. a textile exports company. To this day, that that company runs. We are still manufacturers of multiple different types of apparels in India. And it is currently being headed by uh, uh, someone else from my from my family. But, but essentially, uh, being an entrepreneur has always been my background. That has been one of the businesses that I've been a part of. And additionally, in terms of manufacturing, I've mostly been focusing on the agricultural space. So I have been running a um, a, manu- a tea manufacturing business. So actually, that's uh, that's also a bit of my family background there, where I've been involved in setting up multiple different types of plantation crops um, cool. for processing of tea, making sure that uh, you know the quality of tea that we produce over the years is sees constant improvement, making sure that you know, uh, adequate amount of technology is added from uh, year to year uh, to ensure that we're keeping up with that space. So basically, manufacturing has been the core of my background. And with entrepreneurship involved, I've always been interested in, you know, setting up businesses. And now at Gimba, being the director of production at Central Asia, I'm helping other pe- uh, people's businesses set up different supply chains. So that's been very exciting for me uh, in terms of my journey. Very cool. And in general, in lifetime, most people may have, let's say, 40 to 60 years of years when you have the family background and something, you are probably going to have 60 to 80. So you have an edge there, great background there. On that note, we have one more standard question that we ask every single guest. And after that, we are going to be digging into how to set up this market. So that standard question is going to be your perspective on business growth. Ben, I'll start with you. Yeah, so uh, <clears throat> I'd start by first turning the question on its head, which looks at, um, I think that oftentimes in businesses, when you look at large, large corporations, you see this really clearly, but you also see it in small business, is, is that there's somewhat of a tick-tock type of uh, setup when, when you start talking about organizations that over about a five to 10-year period, they oftentimes switch from growth to then they 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 then start to focus on internal operations efficiencies these types of things and it's we're really at this fascinating inflection point right now uh, with the economy and with organizations where if we were to look at the past five years a lot of organizations especially within our space were very very much focused on growth so it was all about how do we get funding together so that we can uh, so that we can purchase other companies so that we can bring on more brands these types of things. And now recently, what we've been seeing is we've been seeing a hard pivot and that that hard pivot is starting to go towards what does operational efficiency look like? What does it mean to make sure that you're really profitable as an organization so that you can you can really focus on the fundamentals of your of of, of your business model? And so while while it's not it, you know, you can call it growth it still will grow, but it's a different way of growing. And it's not just growth for like revenues growth's sake, but really looking and saying, okay, here's another aspect of our business that we need to focus on. And so when we look at supply chains, there's been all sorts of shock that's been going through the system. And and, and you referred to that when when we kind of smiled when you said robust, because because really, you know, I mean, we had been seeing, you know, higher uh, costs that have been going into labor, that have been going on for the past 15 years. You know, as an example, in China, we ended up having almost a 20x growth in terms of in, in labor costs over time. Um, but then, but then when tariffs ended up hitting, and then finally over the past two to three years, when the logistics shock went through the system, we're now seeing people taking a really, really hard look at it and saying, what does it mean to potentially move our supply chain? What what needs to continue happening there? But the challenge is, 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 is that when you end up moving supply chains, you can actually create additional dependencies in that. And so when you're trying to say, okay, now how do we get this? Do, do we stay with our current suppliers? And do we just really, really kind of focus, you know, white knuckling it, 
to, to, to getting costs out of the system? Or do you have to change the paradigm? And today, right now, Gemba is seeing a lot of organizations saying we really need to start exploring how we change the paradigm so yeah. that we can achieve uh, higher efficiencies so that we can continue to do product development, but doing it at a rate that's sustainable organizationally that can lead to high profit. So amazing. By the way, you did turn the question on its head. So I really liked it. And by the way, uh, you know, you use the word inflection point. Inflection point is um so critical in general uh, in terms of the growth journey. And I believe you mentioned the hard pivot and soft pivot. I think both are going to be equally critical. Sometimes you are going to be making hard pivots, but soft pivots are going to be equally critical as well uh, as you are going to the flexion points. On that note, Anandvir, I'm actually coming to you. So what is your perspective on growth? Would you like to add anything? Would you like to reinforce anything? What's your perspective? Well, I first of all, I completely agree with uh, what Benjamin referred to and and you know what we are seeing today at Gimba. My idea of growth essentially is basically making sure that you're as a as an organization, you're always pushing boundaries and you're always um, taking the difficult road ahead, which ensures that you're always sort of pushing the limits for your organization, something that you've not done before in terms of even if you're talking about just simple sourcing, if you've been used to sourcing from from a particular region all throughout your life, you must sort of break that barrier and you must explore in terms of what are the opportunities you may have to be able to make the right decisions moving forward for your organization. So that constant effort to, to break the boundaries is what translates into growth for me. So as long as you're doing that as an organization and making sure that you're exploring each and every uh, opportunity out there and you're, and you're taking a decision based off of that, that is what growth is for me. Yeah, could not agree more unless you explore how would you know what else is out there. So I completely agree. And in fact, I mean, when you are trying to this robust supply chain, obviously you need as many modes of sourcing, as many sources of sourcing. I don't know if that is the term, but I'll use that, you know, on this episode. Okay, so we are going to dig deeper into overall the apparel market. And you mentioned about the marketplace, and we have collaborated with a lot of different markets so far on this podcast. And I don't know if you guys uh, consider them as competitor. You see, we very focused on a specific market segment. So, Fictive, Code Beam, these are all marketplaces that we have collaborated with. Uh, they seem to be focused more on the manufacturing, engineering centric operations, but you guys seem to be focusing, I believe, on the apparel. You guys can probably add more colors there in terms of your focus. Uh, but when you are looking at this whole notion of supply chain, especially for the apparel market, and when I talk to any of the executives or the supply chain executives, they all talk about how India is important. So obviously, India is going to be there. I don't know how the global market is structured if there are going to be any other sources other than India that could be potentially part of the supply chain. So maybe give us the macro view of the supply chain when when it comes to setting up this whole idea of robust supply chain for the apparel market. When do you want to start? Certainly. Yeah, and I can I can just start by just saying uh, Gemba is involved in a lot of different types of product development. Um, so we have over 1,500 manufacturers in, yep. uh, in multiple different uh, hard goods, soft goods, electronic categories. Um, so whether you're talking about pet products or you're talking about you know, baby products or you're talking about sports and outdoors, these are all areas that, 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 that our network is, is very familiar with. That said, I think that, um, and, and, and Anavir can speak a little bit more to, to some of the real strengths that, that we're seeing in India. I think that, you know, starting at what is the problem set is, is really an appropriate place to, to, to start here. And the problem set that we see is, is that for organizations, especially smaller organizations, so the uh, expansion of groups like Amazon and Shopify and others, in combination with Chinese manufacturing, allowed for many small organizations to get started. Now, that's not to say that it, it was only happening in China. But the OEM opportunities for small brands to begin going and exploring and saying, hey, I'd like to get into mugs. And if you're going to do mugs, you're going to do coffee cups, like what can I purchase here? And it was easy for them to, 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 to find those manufacturers and then, and then to say, OK, I'd like this design or that design or I'd like to make these types of changes. 
However, more recently, we've started to see a, a, a larger shift where people are starting to explore and say, well, we're quite happy with the manufacturing that we have going on. What does this look like in a new marketplace? And specifically for, for products that have significant amounts of, of labor cost in it, where should we head? Where do we need to go? And one of the places that we've seen a lot of success is, is actually in the India market. Um, it, and, and really, it's, it's interesting because, again, if we were to back up to last year, um, a lot of different groups came to this understanding and they just said, oh, the place to go must be Mexico. And there is a lot of opportunity in Mexico, but very similar to Vietnam, it's a much smaller manufacturing marketplace. Um, so, so we ended up seeing saturation that happened quite rapidly in that place. And it can still, still today is going on today with lots of different brands trying to get over there. What's interesting is, is that because of the size of the Indian marketplace, because of the raw materials that are going on there, we've actually seen a lot of opportunity where India has been investing in things like, like, like mills and, 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 and in the raw metals and, and these types of metallurgy types of areas that now is starting to allow for the consumer products market to start to flourish in that, in that area. And so because of that, you know, a lot of groups, when they end up trying to shift to like, say, like a, a, a North or even a Central or South America strategy, is, is that they're still pulling a lot of technical fabrics or, or you know, extruded, extruded aluminum or, or pieces like that from, from the Asia marketplace, the East Asia marketplace, whereas India is actually a large enough um, manufacturer now today and is still growing, that these products are actually available internally within the country. And that's not to say that everything is there, right? Uh, Anavir will we'll talk specifically about things like zippers and, and, and other accessories that are still found primarily in East Asia. But we're seeing this, this, this groundswell that's happening and, and a lot. And as more and more moves to that, that area, we're going to start to see more and more options available. But I'll go ahead and pass it over to Todd and Pierre to talk a little bit more, more deeply about this in the India marketplace. Sure. So, Sam, I can give you some um insight into uh, into the apparel space yeah. uh, currently in India, especially the export uh, uh, space. So the factories in India, you can say India is is not, you know, it's different from China in this way, where the manufacturing um, industry is is wide, it's it's spread geographically um, to all all parts of India. So for instance, if you look at the textile space, yeah, the so southern part of India is supposed to be the textile capital of India, which is also known as a place called Tirupur. Now, in Tirupur, you will only find specialized type of textiles. For instance, cotton, any types of organic uh, textiles primarily is what dominates the area. So if you talk about cotton, if you talk about uh, organic alternative materials nowadays, you that is one space that India is excelling at is um, developing different types and, and you know, uh, different varieties of organic cotton. Then you have things like hemp. Hemp is growing very widely in India at this point. It's not only, it's cultivated in India now, and, uh, and it's also being converted into different types of uh, fabrics for, for um, the home and decor industry, for clothing, for all different types of applications. So in terms of the alternative textile space, I think India is beginning to shine. Of course, it has a long way to go, but I think it gives a good competition to, to any of the other existing textile exporting countries. But if you talk about cotton specifically, southern part of India dominates uh, the export market there. Then we have in the western part of India, we have factories that are primarily focused on nylon, on polyester, all types of man-made fabrics, something what you call technical textiles nowadays. So technical textiles, in other words, is anything that that is uh, developed or the utility of it is what is more important, the functionality of, uh, of it is more important than the aesthetic appeal or the, or the uh, decoration usage of, of, of the fabric. So the Western part of India is primarily focused on developing those kind of technical textiles, which has, you know, multiple different types of PVC coating, coated fabrics and things that, uh, you know, that are used for outdoor and camping sort of products, those fall yeah. into the technical textiles. Now, in this space, I would agree that India is still growing as a nation. It needs more investment, more research and development. Their PVC is generally dominated by China. So most of the coatings and, and all of these things are still imported from China and are traded locally in India. So I would say we are still slightly behind China in that aspect. 
but we need more investment into you know this type of technology that develops different types of pvc coatings dwr coatings and multiple other different types of um, functionally benefiting materials that are applied onto fabric in the northern part of india we have ludhiana and amritsar and these type of places where there's a lot of um, hand weaving and and you know weaving is predominant in that region so we have um, from your woolens to your uh, you know all types of winter wear and outdoor sports and and winter wear categories come out of pashmina shawls and and all of those items come out from the north, northern part of india so every part of india is distinct in terms of their specialties so if you want a woolen product you will not go to the south of india you will definitely go to uh, north india uh, to find suitable factory so that's how uh, geographically it is spread out in india and in terms of product development i would say at this point india is positioned i would say india is you know um, at this time especially with with uh, if you must have heard recently there are restrictions on import of cotton material from specific regions in china so that's just an example of of what is driving more and more growth or more and more clients of ours towards india is for a more sustainable long term sustainable future and specifically because india is is growing to be stronger in the textile space with their technology with their with their garmenting with their skilled labor that is focused on on creating better quality products in the textile space i think more and more uh, that's that's one main reason for the for the for our clients to be making the shift to india of course there are other reasons as well for example india is the second largest english speaking nation in the world so communication makes it very easy for our clients to come to india of course there are uh, you know multiple other reasons for instance the factories have started to become extremely supportive of of any new type of product development uh, uh, for our clients they've been um, they've been very uh, focused on providing that extra level of service to our clients for they realize the the potential of of you know lower moqs in the beginning and and making multi million dollar businesses business partnerships out of that so these are little things that i believe indian manufacturers have started to pay attention to that is now helping them get more and more business helping them uh, grow their export networks and of course like benjamin mentioned there are always going to be certain items that are predominantly being manufactured in china for instance like i mentioned uh, from pvc coatings to to zippers uh, to you know velcros there are many different types of high quality velcros that are that have multiple different types of applications within textiles but i think india needs to invest heavily on on um the manufacturing of these type of trims and accessory related items to be able to be completely independent of of imports of these accessories from different nations in east asia okay some very interesting layers there first off when you provide the great breakdown and comparison overall between your south american versus sort of the asian market uh, and then anantu uh, provided great uh, geographic breakdown of how each of the materials are going to be or regions are going to be with specific textile fabric so but there are some layers there that i want to touch um, at a deeper so again going back to our notion of this whole robust supply chain and when anybody is planning for supply chain there are going to be many different aspects it's not going to be just the material that is going to be available in a specific region for example when you had mentioned the dependency and dependency is going to be for example the zippers you both mentioned the example about that that in the case of zipper you are still going to be dependent upon that region and i think aluminum extrusion is another example that you guys mentioned that you are going to be dependent upon that so this is going to be your dependent material that you need to go to those regions and if one region can provide everything then obviously your supply chain is probably going to be robust but when we look at the supply chain supply chain is going to have a lot of layers number 1 is going to be your transportation so when you are comparing your south america versus your asia region my understanding is going to be overall transportation is expensive as well as difficult and i don't know if the uh, when you are looking at india so india when you mentioned you know north versus south and i don't know if there are going to be any sort of layers there which are going to be far more accessible from the transportation from the supply chain from the container perspective so that's another layer the third layer that i would like to add here is going to be my favorite which is going to be taxation and you know if you look at countries like mexico as well as india 
and I don't know if there are any other countries, they are going through humongous transformation at this point of time overall in their taxation structure. And the whole taxation piece has increased significantly the way they tax the admin effort is going to be higher. So obviously your manufacturing, the supply chain cost is going to be higher. And then, you know, your own cost is going to be higher, let's say if you're running operations. So I'll throw all of that out there. I don't know if you guys are going to add anything, Ben. I'll start with you. What do you think when you are, let's say if I'm the CFO and I'm thinking about supply chain for my apparel business, I need to think about all of these layers. So what would you add to that, Ben? Sure. So I, I think that, you know, if, if you put your CFO hat on, uh, one of the important areas that, 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 that wasn't mentioned, but I think is, is a really important one is to think about what your stock levels are. Yep. So, you know, when you talk about your overall cash flows, when you're coming from a, a, a place like, like East Asia or Southern Asia, like in India, um, when you start looking at the terms, that you're going to get, this is going to be incredibly important. And, uh, and and there's a number of tools that can be used for that to cover that such that you can get 90-day terms uh, from, from different organizations, even for small to medium-sized businesses. And we could talk about that a little yeah. bit later if, if, if that was interesting to your, to your listeners. But I think that the, the reason why I mention this is because when we see like, for instance, like a, a, a a Mexico or or even a South America strategy that goes into place, oftentimes, you know, and, and this goes into your second layer of logistics, is, is that you're going to find some surprising things. And they may they may surprise to the negative. As an example, I just recently saw, so this is about four weeks ago when gas prices were, were relatively high in the US, um, we ended up seeing a uh, 50 plus foot uh, dry van cost from Mexico City, the Mexico City area. So, you know, we're not talking about southern Mexico here. We're yeah. talking about kind of central, central southern Mexico region. And it, it was coming in to get it over over the line into into the US at, at, at roughly six to seven thousand dollars. Now for your listeners who who are familiar with with where container prices are today, like container prices now from from an East Asia standpoint have now started to float below $7,000 in the $6,500 range. So, so part of it is, 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 is that things that you might assume, which is that which is that just because we went through this logistic shock piece, you still getting it over land, while it may be uh, more, more likely, you may not have like a, an outage at, in, in the same way that, that, that we were having from East Asia or even Southern Asia, that your logistics costs may be still quite high. And so it's really, really important that you take into account, you know, what is your overall inventory levels? If you can significantly reduce your inventory levels, that's really, really important. So a strategy that we talked about with uh, with a group recently was where when they look at East or Southern Asia, they actually still have all of their high runners still coming out of that, that area, but they have maybe say three SKUs. They then use that to stock their, to, 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 to put in stock rooms or, or on retail floors with the with the high runners because they know that they're going to be selling through quite a lot of it but then they end up setting up uh closer or nearer to shore a lot of their their, their stock inventory skus that, that that don't have as high a volume and then that way they they don't have like inventory hanging out in their warehouse which is a real problem for a lot of groups today um but specifically looking at the india side and, and i can let let on here talk a little bit about the uh, about the taxation piece. We are seeing that, like for instance, um, it, there's a different strategy. So whereas many clients who may have been going out of East Asia, they were going into the West Coast. Instead, we actually recommend that our clients really look at the East Coast, which then, at least on the U.S. side and/or Europe strategy, that then allows for them to create new partnerships with groups that are potentially not as busy as West Coast facilities may have been. And so it starts to allow you to, to, to address both sides of, of, of the U.S. As, as, you know, in a more holistic way. Um, and, and the final thing I'll just say is, is that I think for almost all groups, really looking at will, where is your bill of material coming from is incredibly important right now. Yeah. And the reason for it, just like we said, is, is that for lack of a zipper, you could have, you know, your manufacturing shut down. And so this is where this is where we're figuring out. It's not that it doesn't exist in other markets. It's oftentimes more expensive. 
And so if you only have kind of your blinders on that say we need to absolutely be lowest cost, then that can actually get you into a place to where then if that market gets cut off or you know there's some sort of interruption that happens, then, then you're stuck going to a new manufacturer and you're starting from scratch, as opposed to saying, hey, we might get 50 to 70% out of our low cost region, and we're going to get 30 to 50% out of our higher cost region. But it ends up becoming something that you know that you can then scale up that, that, that other region if necessary, because a small amount of additional cost is generally speaking a lot better than, than having a full outage of the entire product. Okay, so great advice. Do not have your blinders on. So I don't know if you are going to have any um, uh, uh, thing to add there overall based on what Ben mentioned. No, Sam. Uh, I would love to add something to the uh, to what Ben just said. Um, so in terms of the shipping costs, I'll give you a brief insight on uh, into this. So pre-COVID levels, um, you know, uh, pre-COVID, the shipping from India to the U.S. and I'm talking about the west coast of of U.S was roughly around $5,000 to $6,000 a container. Right, you know, during COVID, or let's say even till July 2021, we saw levels go up to $19,000 or $20,000. Now, in, you know, two years down the line, we are back at the $13,000, $14,000 level at a 30% reduction already. So the fluc- you can see the fluctuation that's happening in the span of three years here. With By next year, we are uh, anticipating the the cost to go down to around 7,000 and 8,000 levels, which is basically the pre-COVID levels. So again, shipping costs at this point are, of course, off the roof, I would agree. But, you know, we are very hopeful for some sort of uh, regulation in this space and some sort of cost reductions in the the next year to come. And we're really hoping that it trade goes back to the pre-COVID levels. And shipping costs have honestly affected multiple different types of business. But at this, having said that, I would also like to add that it's very important for uh, for each business owner to assess the landed costs to their facility at all times. Now, I know we talk about shipping costs all the time, about it going off the roof and you know uh, pricing of a particular component of your product being a little expensive. But what is the overall uh, cost you're paying for that particular product? That is something that you know, uh, business owners must have visibility towards. They must always calculate in terms of, you know, whenever there is a price fluctuation, they should always keep the delivered duty paid, or in other words, the landed costs in mind to be able to have an apples to apples comparison of whether there was an opportunity cost of importing that same material from another country in another part of the world, and whether they would have saved cost doing that. So in other words, the same material that is imported from India and the same material that is imported from China will have different costs, even though the shipping costs from China might be lower than that of India, you know, even if the FOB prices are the same. So even if there is one factor in the entire mix that is different, that could affect the landed costs. And I feel like it's very important for for us to pay attention to the cost. Yeah, could not agree more. Some great additions there overall in terms of the logistics. And sometimes we just feel and assume that one region is probably going to be cheaper, uh, but that may not be true. So one of the things that I am noticing in this conversation is the magic of zippers, I guess. So I don't know why they are so critical and what is so difficult in producing them. So do you guys want to touch a little bit about is that the most critical uh, component that you can have in your apparel process, or there are going to be others. So maybe talk about that. What is uh, complex about the manufacturing process? Which are the regions that are uh, serving the the zippers, and what how companies should be planning around them if they are going to be apparel companies? Ben, do you want to start first? Sure. Yeah. So uh, one I would say is that none of your touched on this before, which is like oftentimes you'll go and you'll get a quote from a manufacturer and that manufacturer will come back and it's like, boom, there it is. And there can be a little bit of shock, at least initially, when organizations are first dealing with the new region where it's like, wow, why is this so expensive? Which can then lead to a dismissal. And what we would say is, is that like, you've really got to kind of put your pioneering hat on. Um, You know, like when when I think back to 2002, the very first SARS outbreak uh, in China or those types of places, it was, it's interesting because I hear very similar, you know, people who say, oh, well, it's so easy in a certain region versus other regions. That happens almost every time you're going into a new region. And, uh, and, and so in that, 
I, you know, I think it's just it's important to talk about like what what can you do to really get down to like the nuts and bolts of what it takes to actually make the move. Um, you you had mentioned zippers, so like as an example, when we look at zippers or we look at you know say locks or or, yeah. or, or small small accessories along those lines. One is 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 that volume 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 is super important here. Um, it, it's an area for those that are in manufacturing. It's like, yeah, you drive the raw material costs down. You start to bring in raw material costs. Part of it is, is, is that when organizations and governments subsidize uh, raw materials and then they end up having that raw material processing going on, that then also further depresses the price. But then from there, it goes into automation. So what type of machinery is being used to actually produce this? So automation versus low cost labor, generally speaking, automation is likely going to win on that side, especially when you talk about, we're not talking about cutting edge automation. What I'm talking about is is this stuff that like, it's like, we're going to make this zipper and and like, you're not going to have people, you know, hand pressing zippers. If you do, like you're going to have problems. Um, and so in that, having the automation that is is sustained by the actual volume of production that's going on. And I fully believe, as an example, in India or in other regions, that as we see volume start to move, of course, we're going to start to see smaller players. Those smaller players are going to grow to become me- medium-sized to larger players in these markets. And it will become it will become available. Just like the, the, the overall moves that are happening, it's just going to take a little bit of time on that piece of it. But the secondary portion of this is, is that you really need to look in your bill of materials to determine what are your real price drivers. And a lot of times what we see in the soft goods and in the apparel market, it's not necessarily going to be your zippers or even your Velcro that's going to be driving that cost. It's going to be your fabric. Generally speaking, your cut and sew, if you, you can find some great cut and sews in, in India that have, are already automating in significant ways. So they have both low cost labor as well as automation happening at the same time, which makes for a great mix. But then what you end up finding is, is that the technical the technical fabrics, okay, these types of uh, sports uh, sports types of fabrics or, or otherwise, like they're just not as available. And so, but the great thing about India is, is that we now have a number of mills that are actually in India that are now willing to do the R&D and the work necessary to get you to the place that you need to go. I'll give two examples and the Anapura can dive into, into one of them if he'd likes. But in one case, we ended up working with an organization that was a very large bag manufacturer. And when I say, you know, like, like tens of containers per day going out in the bag space. But in order for them to make the move from East Asia to Southern Asia, it really required that they that they work with the groups to create a new polyester, a lower cost polyester that could be done in India. Once that was achieved, that then opened up a whole new business line for multiple, multiple different groups. And the manufacturers were really the ones that then worked with the mills and with the other groups to make it to make it happen. In the second example, we, we, we had another group that was doing uh, what would be kind of a sports type of type of uh, a performance wear type of um, uh, fabric. And again, finding the manufacturer that was large enough and integrative enough to then to be able to work with the mills directly ended up resulting in a really, really high quality um, uh, fabric that was at a cost point that, that, that was really attractive. And so then when you pair it up with low cost cut and sew, it, it, it made for, for, for a huge win for, for them as an organization. But Anavir, I don't know if you'd like to jump into one of those two as we look at like what's actually driving the cost and, 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 and how do organizations, you know, how do they solve for this? Right. So I, I just wanted to add that. So polyester, you mentioned, Benjamin, India has primarily been focused all of these years and in the past few decades on, on organic material. So when we talk about organic wool, cotton, bamboo, all of these different types of natural fibers, that has been the primary focus in India. But when we talk about polyester, nowadays we see a ton of factories in India investing in polyester yarn technology that's recyclable polyester. So primarily the focus has been towards recycling and producing low cost polyester that is specifically for the South Asian market and and not the higher uh, higher costing or high quality markets like like the EU and uh, and the US. 
So that market was primarily dominated by China, who was making, due to their technologies and due to their investments in manufacturing very high quality polyesters from which performance fabrics are prepared, which these, which is primarily used in the sports industry. China was primarily focused on, on that portion of it all of these years. That is pretty much why we see that importing these high performance yarns or fabrics from, uh, from another country, specifically China, uh, drives the cost up. That is pr- the, the most important factor here to consider. And when we talk about the Indian mills jumping into the into the space, we've seen, so for instance, in India, I don't know if some of the listeners have, have heard about this group, but the market is dominated by, by this group called Reliance Corporation. In India. Reliance is the primary manufacturer of polyester and polyester yarn in India, and it dominates the oil space as well. So all of the developments in this space has been pretty much, uh, you know, driven by this company that has dominated the imports of of all of the yarn and all of the other, um, uh, you know, raw materials to manufacture this yarn. So this is these have been certain blockers in making sure that there is more investment in this space, that that there is more mills ready to develop such high performance fabrics, and that is why primarily due to uh, all of these reasons, you know, the costs haven't been. Uh, significantly brought down over the years. However, now that we are seeing more and more shift towards India as a manufacturing space, we're seeing we're seeing mills invest more time, more money uh, in in getting the right machinery set up to actually develop the the yarn from the you know from the fiber level. And they're working to on different types of R and D to create such high performance fabrics, Indian based yarns uh, that that can give competition. To some of the best functional yarns around the world. So we are starting to see that shift already. And in the years to come, we'll see very competitive raw material uh, raw materials coming out of India. Okay. So some very interesting layers there. And by the way, Ben, the way you started, I think you are going to make my designer so unhappy because you are trying to imply that, you know what, you should be mass produced and they are going to feel that, you know, why do you need those ugly zippers uh, on those apparels? Okay. So... We'll figure out, okay, how to make the the zippers sexy at the same time. You need to make sure that your supply chain is going to be robust as well. So the other layer that I want to touch is going to be the outbreak that you mentioned. I guess you both sort of implied there a little bit. So I want to touch on the implications of war. Uh, Anand, you had mentioned the correlation, and I don't know if the zippers are going to have the one more dependency overall on polyester. Uh, but here, you know, you have war going on. War is impacting oil, um, and polyester is probably going to have dependency on oil. So maybe try to connect the dots there. Okay, my critical component is zipper, but zipper is going to have many different dependencies there, uh, obviously in the polyester market. So how that is going to be impacted overall? Ben, do you want to start first? The implications of war. Sure. Um, so the implications of war. Um, you know, there's both. When a war happens, yeah. which we're certainly seeing in, uh, in 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 Eastern Europe right now, and you know with, with with those different groups that are involved in it, so so we're seeing we're seeing things that are you know natural gas related primarily in this in this area that then send, ends up sending demand shock uh, through the system in certain certain regions. And Europe is one of the hardest hit. However, what we are seeing is we're seeing, uh, like for instance, with India, um, where they're actually pulling in lower cost petroleums, as is China uh, today. And so, and so, both being very opportunistic in this in this in this area, we're like, you know, it, it, it's funny how kind of the whack a mole and, and or the shift ends up happening in these in these areas where where suddenly we start to see see that flowing in a different different way than we might have uh, before in the past. Um, but then there's also the threat of war. And so and so in the areas when conflicts and or tensions start to rise, we start to see businesses that really start to look at and say, like, like where, do we, where will we find stability, right? Where can we know that we can have a stable supply chain and that the calculus starts to switch? It starts to switch again uh, away from potentially the lowest cost to, 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 to a place to where we say, Okay, we actually want to make sure that we have sustained supply. So I think that for many of your listeners, if they've been, uh, you know, in the market for the past four years, one of the things that really stung, really, really stung was the lost sales. 
And, and, and it wasn't just the lost revenues from the lost sales. It actually was because they actually may have given up some of their market share to other groups that didn't go out of supply. And so that's not necessarily something that you can get back easily. Um, and, and, and again, we, we don't have to belabor that. But again, conflicts of multiple different sorts, whether that be trade, economic, and or physical in nature, and, and of course, all of them are tragic in, in certain ways, like that all has to go into, into people's uh, equation as they, as they think about it. Specifically, though, I think that, I think that this is something that, that, that we're going to begin seeing more and more organizations that are making switches because of that, trying to find safe harbors or, you know, from groups that have like the depth and the width of manufacturing capability in order to produce all of these. And, and the interesting part is, is that in the short term, you're going to see some, some, some opportunities in places like India. Um, and, and, you know, obviously, we'd be happy to talk with your listeners more if that's something that they're interested in. But there's actually a lot of different places where this is happening. And I would say that, like, when you think about this, it's not just the, the, the oil price, so to speak. It's also the energy price. And so even if you have cheap, cheap coal or you have cheap, <clears throat> cheap oil, that doesn't necessarily mean that your energy price that goes to the manufacturers is inexpensive. And this is actually an area that when we look at like the southeast of the U.S. or even the Texas region, they have a lot of competitive advantage, like globally, like globally. And so and so the, the, for your listeners, they may actually find some surprises there as well to the positive. But again, for groups like India, this is an area that, that that's going to be critical for them. Not only do they need to remain in supply while, while while war is going on, but then on top of that to then say, OK, how do we make sure that we've got the infrastructure? in place and the policies you mentioned taxation is one of those that really then allows for the raw materials to be produced at a price that's competitive if as as they continue to grow as a market okay amazing uh Arun, do you have anything to add there absolutely i'd just like to add that for india uh you you know most people must be aware of uh our leadership uh our prime minister uh narendra modi who has been in power for the last uh eight years has been stressing on his Make in India campaign uh, since he uh, joined office, which basically uh, puts the focus on Indian manufacturing. It gives a push, it makes it easier for manufacturers to, to do business in terms of to conduct business. Uh, when you talk about taxation, uh, on exports, there is multiple different types of subsidies that the government has, has proposed for all different types of industries related to exports. There is no GST implied on any kind of exports that you do from the country. And apart from apart from that, there are multiple different types of drawbacks that a factory can draw from the government, uh, you know, as their exports from the country uh, increase. And this has been a major push for factories in India. Uh, people have been, um, you know, setting up multiple different types of uh, factories for, uh, you know, particularly in export promotion uh, zones in India. Where where import of any materials is also uh, uh, duty free. So basically, there has been a ton of push from the government of India to make sure that exports rise. And like Benjamin said, opportunity, or uh, you know, the opportunity to source coal from different from uh, different countries during uh, this war that's taking place has ensured that India has enough supplies in terms of its power uh, <clears throat> power generating capabilities. But I also wanted to. Add Add that more than the current war that's going on, I think some of the other things that we we should consider here is also the U.S. and China trade war that has been going on for the past few years. That has also shifted focus towards Indian manufacturers because um, the duties on multiple different types of product categories for imports from India are significantly lower than than that of uh, certain other countries in Southeast. Asia. So there are there's always a balancing act here. Like there's you know, one trade, one war that that causes a lot of damage, while the other war sort of gives you opportunities to to sort of uh, develop your own country's strengths. Okay, Sam, I think there's there's one other key thing here uh, that that we haven't touched on, and it's something that we see as a as a successful strategy for for organizations, especially yeah. on the India side when we talk about policy, is is that not only thinking about India as an export 
for you as an organization, but also looking at it for the domestic market itself, the domestic Indian market. And so, uh, especially when we look at uh, like a difference between like an East Asia, China, where VAT refunds or these types of things versus some of the drawbacks that, that Anna Beer mentioned is, is that part of it is for export. Okay, so if they're exporting, there are certain policies that have gone into place. But then also, if it's a mix between export as well as sale into the domestic market, you can actually significantly grow your business potentially, as well as as achieve lower costs. And so that's something to think through. I, I find that oftentimes, uh, you know, depending on on where groups are from, your your my, my European friends, I think of the size of their markets oftentimes are looking at like how do we expand to the next market whereas some of my north american friends it's kind of like our market's big enough to where we we don't always think about moving to the next market but these are huge opportunities that that, that if you find the right manufacturing partner and if you find the right group that, that that can then retail or resell your product you can have significant growth in a short time Okay, some very interesting layers there. So now I want to take your perspective overall from the market-based business model. And we have had a lot of different debates and discussions. And right now, in my mind, it's uh, still in Berlin, how this is going to go overall, how the manufacturers are going to be receiving it as, I don't know if this is going to be more of you for them. So when I talk to my manufacturing friends, there are two perspectives. One perspective is always, okay, this is going to be my additional channel, more from revenue perspective, also from the vendor's perspective, that I am trying to tap into the vendor groups or the country where I never had access to. Here, I have sense of reliability because, you know, you guys are probably going to be vetting those vendors uh, a lot more than a, a manufacturer can. The other perspective is more of the revenue that you are looking at more from the supplier perspective that this is your additional revenue channel. But there is a third perspective and these guys see marketplaces as more of the technology company who's, you know, perceived as more of the brokers. Uh, they are trying to make commission. So they are, no, 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 no. Why am I uh, doing my rev share with these guys? So these are some of the different mindsets in the market. Obviously, every business is going to add significant value to the value chain. So in your perspective, where is this whole marketplace business model added? Where do you see it going, let's say, next three, five, 10 years? Yeah. So when we look at marketplace, especially in the product development sphere, it it's interesting because there's 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 not as many organizations that are out there. You can find marketplaces that are focused on, say, design, product design, get it designed or, or something along those lines. You can find other groups that are focused on supply chain, but it's very difficult to find ones that where you say, how do we bring a multi-party group together that you can have a successful product development journey? And that that really is the core basis for, for, for us at Gemba, which is that how do you bring the designers all the way to the manufacturers? And there's different parts of that. How do you select the right, right designer? How do you find that person who is in your space who really understands and can get you quickly there. Sometimes the, the the advice of an expert, 15 minutes with them is worth weeks of time with an amateur, uh, for, for those of you who have been in business in the past. And then for the manufacturing side, really when you're at an inflection point, if there's a lot of transparency in the marketplace already, and by that I just mean like finding different options, like sure, like it's it's relatively easy. You can just pick up the phone and you can call or you can email or do those things. But when you have a developing market, when you have changes, right, change that's going on, these are opportunities where having boots on the ground, having people that are actually getting on buses, getting on trains, traveling to the location to actually be in the manufacturing space is really so critical. And so, and then, and then on the manufacturing side, it's about how do we build volume? How do we build good, good business? And if we have great quality, how do we project that? And so I believe that by bringing these pieces together, that it'll allow small to medium-sized organizations, as well as big business that may be smaller or medium-sized divisions, to really navigate the waters well. Because I think that over the next five to 10 years, my expectation is, is that we're going to see more turbulence. We're not going to be seeing less turbulence. And so for people that were on the airplane and they saw their, their drink kind of shaking and they kind of grab the, the, the thing and they're like, when is this going to stop? I would just say, 
on this one, this is going to be the new normal for a period of time. There's going to be great opportunity. We're going to see brands that grow really, really fast in this, and they're going to have to be really agile. And that's where marketplaces come in. That's where if you can be using your resources, you can stay small, you can stay agile as an organization, you can bring in significant profits by, by, by partnering with different marketplaces that, that allow you to do that. But Anavir, especially, you know, as, as you look at India specifically, what are you seeing in the marketplace side of it and, and where are the opportunities? So the opportunities, Ben, in India are pretty much in the... Um you know the vendor space in india i think the vendor market the factory market in india is is i would say really untapped i think the visibility that these many of these exporters have is is really uh, something something to take a look at i think i think with more visibility into their infrastructure with more visibility uh, into their um uh, you know um into their uh, interest in in developing a new clientele and a new market is is something that we need to focus on, and it's something that uh, we are we are wanting to sort of focus on uh, going into the future. Well, as a quick note, Sam, just as we finish up, we're also seeing a lot in the India side in terms of with engineering. So for organizations, and and I know software engineering is something that people oftentimes go to, but but we're talking about like physical goods engineering, DFM, you know, the, these types of things where where people are doing finite element analysis and these types of things. There's some really good organizations. And so, again, this is where, where you know, we, we had one client who said, you know, it's like hiring PhDs, except for a much lower cost. And so in, in so much as that's helpful for you as an organization, I think you still have to look at how do you establish quality? How do you make sure that they're a good business, that they follow through? That's where the marketplace reputation models really come into effect. But then ultimately, it allows you to be be agile so that so that you can be working with some of the best people at the best prices for the best results. All right, guys. So that's it for today. Do you guys have any last minute closing advice for our listeners? Ben, do you want to start first? Sure. I would just say, um, again, as I mentioned, I think that the turbulence is actually going to grow, grow, grow significantly greater over time. We may go into a period where it seems like things are settling out a little bit, but overall, we really see a trend of, of transition that's happening. You need to know your market, like not just like go with the crowd, right? Like everybody's like, okay, we all need to leave this. That's not that's not what you should do. You should understand what the strengths of each market are, and then you need to be looking about two to five years ahead on the on you know where is it moving where is the hockey puck moving there because because that will allow you to start making the bridging opportunities that you need to in order to be at the right place at the right time so that you don't get get caught out um again there's many groups and teams that that, that i know that, that that your listeners can can team up with but again be prepared for more turbulence and not less okay Anna, do you have any closing advice please Yes, I just have one uh, small advice. So anyone out there who's looking to develop a new product from scratch and wants to consider a new market, has their vision in, in place, I would only suggest to, uh, to, to be a little, to try and be a little more patient and consider that any new product development uh, takes a little bit of time and understanding between the two parties involved. And that time, I would say, is critical to develop trust, to develop a sense of uh, um, long-term uh, successful business partnership opportunity. And I think a good five to six months is an average period of time. I'm not saying that that's, that's how long it takes. In certain cases, we've taken, we've, we've uh, you know, uh, developed products within, within two months, but it completely boils down to what product you're talking about. On the average, I would say, if you consider around five to six months of product development time with your chosen manufacturer and really hone that partnership, I think that is go, going, to, going to go a long way uh, in setting up your supply chain. All right, guys. And my personal takeaway from this conversation is going to be as much as I don't want any more turbulence in my life or in this world, you know, there is going to be turbulence. So you definitely need to plan for that. And that's what is going to make your supply chain robust. On that note, I really want to thank you guys for your time and insight today. This has been a powerful episode. Thank, thank you so, so much. much I cannot thank our guests enough for coming on the show, for sharing their knowledge and journey. I always pick up learnings from our guests and hopefully 
you learned something new today. If you want to learn more about Ananj or Ban, head over to gemba.com. It's G-E-M-B-A-H.com. Links and more information will also be available in the show notes. If anything in this podcast resonated with you and your business, you might want to check other related episodes, including the interview with David Chavez, who shares the nuances of outsourced contract manufacturing. Also, the interview with Rick Watson, who shares how to plan for warehouse and logistics architecture for DTC brands selling through marketplaces. Also, don't forget to subscribe and spread the word among folks with similar backgrounds. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please review and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform or DM me and on any social channels. I'll try my best to respond personally and make sure you get help. Thank you and I hope to get you on the next episode of the WBS Podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of the WBS Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform so you never miss an episode. For more information on growth strategies for SMBs using ERP and digital transformation, check out our community at wbs.rocks. We'll see you next time.